you would take your Bibles and open to John chapter 7 with me this morning as we will be looking at verses 37 through 39, continuing on with Jesus' ministry in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. John chapter, 30, or chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. We read this, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we come to your word. This is your word. We pray that you would do with it what you have decreed and purpose that it would accomplish this morning. Father, our confidence is knowing this, that your word never returns void, and that it always accomplishes that for which you send it. And we pray, Father, this morning, in whatever that purpose is, that you would be glorified. May we know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. May we know the graciousness of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. May we find satisfaction in the living water that is him. And may we leave here this morning as changed people with a fresh vision of Christ from the scriptures. That he alone would be glorified. This we ask and pray. This we ask desperately as needy people that you would do for us. So do it now by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name. Amen. In 1758... A man by the name of Robert Robinson penned the words to the famous hymn, which we have sung here, and no doubt you have as well, or at least listened to it many times. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Robert Robinson had been converted just a few years earlier, six years earlier, under the ministry of George Whitfield. I bet you didn't know that part of the hymn story. George Whitfield, in preaching a sermon on the wrath of God so burdened Robinson that he was converted. The Holy Spirit used that sermon to bring him to saving faith in Jesus Christ in 1752. And as you reflect this morning on that hymn, as we think about its words, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy. As we think about those words and we see Christ not only here in the word, but in the hymns of the church, such as come thou fount of every blessing, we begin to understand, don't we? That Christ is the source from which all blessings flow. We sing it in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. How do they flow? Not intermittently, not randomly, but they flow in the person of Jesus Christ as the saving truth about Christ is revealed in his word to us over and over and over again. The text before us this morning 
we see that familiar refrain. Streams of mercy, saving mercy, flowing from the Lord Jesus Christ as they always do in John's gospel. And so this morning, I want you to see the hopes that we have, the foundation of hope that we have in Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Would you notice, first of all, that there is a context to this hope. There is a context to this hope that Jesus expounds upon here in John's gospel. John tells us here in verse 37 that the events that are about to be unfolded before us are occurring at the very end of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's been a great time. It's been a great celebration. The the people of Israel have come to Jerusalem. Again, one of three feasts that that all males were obligated to attend on an annual basis. And they've, they've been in Jerusalem and for seven days living in their little temporary tabernacles, their little temporary shelters. They have rehearsed time and time again the goodness of God, the greatness of God as he provided for their ancestors in the wilderness. But what their ancestors experienced in the wilderness, it's going to be nothing compared to what Jesus is about to reveal to them just outside the temple. The strategic time has now come at the end of the feast for Jesus to fling open the treasure house of truth that is contained in himself and in his ministry. He's going to use the metaphors, as you'll see in just a moment, for the people not only to hear his words, not only to understand that his words are metaphors that point to greater truths, but to actually see the objects that Jesus mentions in the metaphors, that they might more accurately understand what it is that Jesus is conveying to them. We're not sure if this is either the seventh day or the eighth day. You remember by the time of Jesus' ministry, the the Old Testament had been added to and changed somewhat so that the feast went from seven days commanded in the Old Testament to eight days, according to Judaistic tradition in Jesus' time. In either case, it's the last day of the feast, as John says. It's the last day. It's the great day in which these symbolic acts began to be carried out. They were preparing to go home. They're preparing to return to wherever it is that they had come from. And so like those of you who are familiar with camping will know that on the last day, you begin to break down the camp. You start to take the tent apart. You air it out. You do certain things. There's a a familiar process when you're camping and so these people are going through the motions of something they do every year and they begin to deconstruct uh, these uh, booths and take them apart stick by stick and all the while they're they're singing the psalms the halal psalms of psalm 113 through 118 and they're singing these with a, a jubilant and a joyful spirit and yet As great as their joy is, it is nothing compared to the joy that is in Christ. A Christ they they have not yet, according to John 7, come to fully understand and know. Some have dabbled with him. Others are still in outright rejection of him. 
But imagine the scene as they are breaking camp that morning, taking their little shelters apart. And there's a yet a ceremony to be had in the midst of the celebration. Each morning of the feast culminating on this morning, the priest would take a, a golden vessel fashioned from gold and they would ceremonially march to the pool of Siloam. There they would dip their golden vessel into that pool, fill it with its water and come back to the temple and pour that water all around the base of the altar of burnt offering. Symbolizing the provision God had made in the wilderness of the water that flowed out of the rock. They do that every morning of this feast. And on this great day, this last day, all the people would have gathered and would have lined the streets as the priest go through the ceremony, recalling what God had done to cause come flowing from the rock for their provision. I want you to understand that this metaphor that they would have been watching as Jesus himself is watching and as Jesus will use as the basis of the analogy he is giving here, the metaphor that from the man who believes in him, rivers of water will flow as it did from the rock. They were to understand this metaphor, and we can understand it even better, I think, with all of Scripture revealed and given to us now. That this metaphor had three purposes. One, it was a historical metaphor. Again, they remembering what God had done in the wilderness so many years before and providing water for his people. Secondly, it's a present metaphor for the people. It's a present metaphor For them as they are about to enter the rainy season. And this is an agrarian culture. They literally are dependent on the crops to survive. And if there's no rain, there's no crops. If there's no crops, there's famine. And so this is not just a casual ho-hum. If you're like me, you try a garden every year with great hopes that it's going to feed the family. Only to find myself at H-E-B. Because, well... It just didn't turn out like I hoped. We have a fallback plan. These people have no fallback plan. That This is absolutely necessary for life. And so it's a ceremony in which this water also came to symbolize dependence upon God. And so as they offer it there in the temple, they're not only remembering what God has done. They are confessing to God, we need you. As the only God who can control the rain... Send us rain. Cause it to flow and nourish your people. Third, it was a future or eschatological metaphor. And this is the one that Jesus seems to seize on the most here in John 7, 37 through 39. Because it becomes for Jesus and to us then by his teaching an anticipation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. By which, Jesus says, those who believe in me will have rivers of living water flowing from their innermost being. And so with this going on and and as the backdrop and this occurring, 
among the people and, and, and clearly in their line of sight that they can see this, not just hear this. Jesus delivers this message. Now, Jesus might have stood at any time during the last seven days, and we say, well, why did he wait until the last day? Why did he not say this sooner? Why did he not give the good news sooner so that maybe they could have had, you know, a Q&A? I mean, all good conferences have Q&As, right? Sometimes they're the most helpful and entertaining part. Why, why didn't Jesus do it sooner? I'll tell you why he didn't. Because Jesus, in his grace and in his desire that what he was about to say be understood, he waited until the metaphor was solidly in their mind so that they could understand. And this, brothers and sisters, points to the grace and the mercy of our Savior. He doesn't just dump truth on us and say, sort it out, have fun. He comes and teaches us in a way, as he does in his ministry, so that people can make the connections and understand. What a gracious God that not only would he reveal himself, but he would reveal himself in a way that we can get it. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is preaching in such a way so that what the people have just witnessed will be easily tied to the truth he is going to give that they might be changed by it. It's not ivory tower academia. It's not Gnostic revealed truth that some get and some won't. This is open for all to see and for all to hear and understand how gracious that our master would teach in such a way with clear, poignant illustrations that mean something to us. The second focal point of the text comes as Jesus now stands and speaks. They've seen the metaphor. (coughs) If you'll notice the text, Jesus stands. (coughs) Two things in Jesus' teaching now tell us how unique Jesus is. Not only do they tell us how unique he is, but they tell us why we have reason to hope in him. I want you to notice something. Both of the things that Jesus does in communicating this are characterized by what he does not do. (coughs) Excuse me, let me get my peppermint out. Fall has come. (coughs) Jesus, number one, stands and cries out. He cries out from the standing position. This is different than the rabbis. The rabbis did not stand to teach. They rather sat. Jesus is not like the other rabbis. He he wants to make that clear, even down to the detail of how he preaches and teaches. And so Jesus stands with something significant and burning to say. Notice what else Jesus does not do. Jesus does not begin with a rhetorical flourish as the rabbis so often did, by saying something such as the rabbis say, or thus says the Lord, that's what the prophets said. 
Brother Jesus stands up and just begins to communicate truth. He does not need to preface it with anything because he himself is the prophet. That becomes clear in verse 40. Some some are saying this is the prophet. This is the one who is promised of old. Jesus is the source of truth. He does not need to quote the source of truth. And so by the absence of any rhetorical flourishes or devices at the beginning, Jesus is communicating that what follows is authoritative. I am not like you. If we want proof that this is understood by the people, just go on down. Go to verse 46. These are the temple guard, the the temple police, if you will, who have been sent to seize Jesus. They come back empty-handed. The Pharisees want to know why. And the officers say this in verse 46, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. They immediately become concerned that they have swallowed the message, don't they? Jesus, in his teaching, in his Profound statements here in verses 37 through 39 marks himself out as authoritative and different simply by what he does not do. He does not sit and he does not quote. He stands and he delivers. Delivers truth. It's not secondhand information, but straight from the source itself, both in the content of the message and in the delivery of the actual substance. He is not simply talking about living water. He is living water. As the woman in Samaria came to know, Jesus has a context of hope that he is speaking within. And it matters, and people are beginning to grasp it as verse 46 communicates to us. They are beginning to get the significance of everything Jesus is either doing or not doing. Everything that Jesus is saying is beginning to hit home to these people. It doesn't mean they all accept it, but it's getting through. It rejoices the hearts of some, and it, it, it raises the ire and the anger of others. But he is getting through. Secondly, I want you to notice that there is a a great deal of hope here. And it is the content, not just the context in which Jesus speaks that matters, but it is the content that Jesus delivers of hope that matters. In the middle of this feast, Jesus is surrounded by those who we know, according to to last week's text, intend to do him ultimate harm. They want to kill him. This has been their heart's desire since chapter 5, where they openly are revealed as hating Jesus to the point of wanting to murder him, thus breaking their own law. Jesus challenging that, saying, what have I done? Why do you seek to kill me? I've done nothing worthy of death. And so Jesus, here in the midst of people who hate him, who are actively seeking to murder him, stands and delivers this invitation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. He doesn't go to the well-watered. He comes to the thirsty, 
And whether they know it or not, or maybe whether we are aware of it or not, but that is the, the perpetual spiritual condition of all men and women born in this world. We are born spiritually needy, desperate, thirsty. We need life. Notice that, that Jesus here, it doesn't come across so well in the English, but it comes across very clearly in the language with which Jesus delivers this. Jesus speaks in such a way as to convey that it is not probable or possible thirst that these people have. They are thirsty whether they know it or not. He's bold. He's not asking them if they're thirsty. He's telling them they're thirsty. It's not, well, do you feel you have a need for eternal life? No, you have a need for eternal life. It isn't, do you think Jesus would improve your life? It isn't just, do you think you need the gospel? No, you need the gospel. You need Christ. You need to be freed from the dungeon of your sins. You need to be cleansed from your sin. God is angry with you. You are parched and about to dry up and blow away. This is not some pathetic crusade. Well, would you like to come? Maybe you think you have a need. No, you have a need. This is a prophet speaking. This isn't a poet suggesting. This is a prophet declaring. You are thirsty. Therefore come. And find the river of water. Remember Jesus knows the hearts of these people. He doesn't need them to speak in order to know. According to chapter 2 verses 23 and 25. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. And he knows your heart. He knows my heart, which isn't always a good thing. We've all heard the little phrase, well, Jesus knows my heart. That may or may not be a good thing at the moment, depending on when you ask. The heart is wicked and desperately evil. Who can know? We can't even discern our own hearts, but Jesus can. And, and there are those who are here this morning that the scripture says that we are thirsty. And we have one source to go to. And one alone, and that is Christ. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will provide life. Jesus here, as he does for the woman at the well in Samaria in chapter 4, he opens himself up for the taking. All of you thirsty people, come. All you thirsty, come and drink. It is an imperative command that Jesus gives. Again, it is not an invitation. It is not a suggestion. It is imperative, come. The need is pervasive. All of you are thirsty. Therefore, all of you must come. Jesus is drawing not from his own thoughts, not in a radical new movement, but he's drawing on the authority of revealed truth all the way back to Isaiah, who, by the way, Isaiah, we're coming up on Christmas, so we'll see a lot of passages on little signs and things of that nature from Isaiah. Why? Because Isaiah was the most Christ-centered prophet that wrote in all the Old Testament. He spoke more directly, more clearly about Christ 
than any other prophet. And Isaiah, anticipating the day, Jesus relying back on Isaiah, quoting from now from Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. These people have just seen the waters poured out. Oh, come to them. Come to them. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see, the problem in John seven thirty seven through 39 is not that the people... don't have enough to come to Christ, is that they have too little. They need less, not more. You can't come to Jesus, you can't come to this water and possess anything. Remember their words to Jesus in Galilee in just a chapter earlier? What must we do to do the works of God? Oh, really? You've kept all the law and now you want more to do? How silly. How foolish. Isaiah, there are none of you who have the money to purchase what Christ offers. There is no hope in anything you bring to him. You just come thirsty and drink. To drink is to believe. To take him in by faith. To be nourished and quenched by the person of Christ. To be changed by him. These people have not come to Jesus for Jesus. They have come to Jesus because of what Jesus has done up to this point. All the signs, all the wonders, all the works. That is not partaking of Jesus. Signs never satisfy anyone. Christ satisfies. Period. No sign will satisfy to validate the truth. Only the source of truth, only truth itself satisfies. And so Jesus commands him, come to me. Don't come to what I do. Don't come for other reasons. Come to me. And there is no payment that you may bring in your hand when you do. The gospel, frankly, is insulted when we bring ourselves into the equation. There's nothing we can do. There is literally nothing we can do to experience the life-giving mercies of Jesus. The life-giving water. At any point that we refer to the gospel and we refer to God's redeeming work through his son toward us and we insert the first person into that, I, then that has become the thing that we are believing has affected our salvation. It's all He. It's all Him. It's all grace. No wonder Isaiah says, come without money. You don't have any. These people think they're full of, quote, spiritual money. All the works. 
all the festivals, all the codes. They think they are wealthy in this sense. And Jesus says, no, but when you come to this fountain, it will strip you of literally all your pride and all your self-sufficiency. You will come, but you will come spiritually naked. It will bring you to a state of being absolutely spiritually parched. The gospel will bring you to the end of yourself so that all you have is Christ as we sing. Hallelujah, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. It then fills us with satisfying water, the likes of which cannot be imagined by these people. we go to Isaiah. In fact, turn over in your Bibles. That that is such a seminal chapter. Look in Isaiah 55 and you might mark this. Because everything that Isaiah has written is not only true of Jesus, it becomes true of the people. If you go to Isaiah 55 verse 2, Listen to the tragedy that is unfolded before us. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Why do you spend money on things that are called bread but are not bread? Why do you invest your life day after day after day in doing the things that do not lead to salvation? This is how you're responding. If you're responding to Jesus in any other fashion than faith. Belief in him. You're buying something that poses as bread but is not. You you are living for something that is bringing death, not life. No wonder we are dry. No wonder we are broken. No wonder we are parched. No wonder we are so foolish. But notice that the heart of Jesus here is not to berate the people. It's to beckon them. Come. Come. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have ever given instruction to someone about something and they don't do it, and they don't do it, and they don't, and then finally you just forget it, move on. Not Jesus. When we are at our worst, Jesus beckons the loudest. Come. Come and drink. Jesus is not here to get even. He is God, remember. 
Jesus could have done any number of things to get rid of his detractors. But he doesn't. He beckons them. He doesn't come to get even. He comes to give of himself. I cannot fathom love of that nature. We look at Isaiah in Isaiah 6 at the commission of Isaiah. Hear my Lord, send me. And the very next words out of the mouth of God are go, but they're not going to hear. Show, but they will not see. Isaiah, you're going to an absolutely fruitless ministry. And we look at Isaiah and go, wow, what a guy. What devotion. But there was one greater than Isaiah who came whose rejection was even worse. His name is Jesus. He came from heaven. He takes on our humanity, truly God, truly man. He offers himself, and notice what he says in the text. Come to me. Come to me. Not just to what I tell you, but but I am the one whom the prophets have told you about. So come to me, Acts 4.12. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must, we must be saved. It's not only to Christ that we must come, but we must turn away from everything else because nothing else has power to save. But when Christ saves, how he saves. Come and drink. Come. And unless we think maybe this is some isolated use of this picture, listen to how scripture closes. Now listen, if, if last words of people are important, and oftentimes they are, some of the most profound words people speak are on their deathbed. And one, one of my favorites is J. Gresham Machen, who on his deathbed, his last words were the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That Christ lived perfectly in his place profound well listen to how scripture closes really with its last before its concluding statements in the final few verses here is really the the last forceful call of scripture in revelation twenty two seventeen. and the spirit and the bride say come well we've heard that haven't we come and let the one who hears say come that's all of us And this is where Jesus is going with this. Not only is God saying it, but we begin to say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Do you see God weaving scripture into one united whole? Centered in his son, come. Come and drink of Christ's perfect life in your place, of his perfect death in your place, as your substitute in his perfect life being raised from the dead in your place. Come and drink of that, that you might live and not die. Jesus says, come to me. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being, 
could literally be very woodenly interpreted as one's belly. The very core of who we are. Out of the very core of who we are will flow rivers of living water. This has never been done before. This has never been known before. This is something altogether new and special and unique. But but water, living water, life itself will flow from all who believe in Jesus. It's not going to be like the annual feast where we watch the water flow once a year. Isn't that exciting? Every moment of every day, life dwells within us. Because the spirit of the living God is in us. Because Christ has placed him there in us. Permanently living water flows. You might ask, well, where did scripture say that? I don't remember the Old Testament, which Jesus would have been quoting from. Where would that have said that? Where does that come from? And the answer is not any one particular place, but rather from many places. But Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 15, and then 19 and 20 are perhaps some of the clearest. If you'll remember what has happened, the nation of Israel has returned from captivity. It has been generations now since they heard the word of God, the life-giving word of God read for them. And Ezra and all the priests take the word and they begin to read the word to the people and the people begin to weep. So long had they been parched and famished and dying for a breath of truth. The priests began to go out and they began to break the congregation into groups and they began to explain to them what had just been read to them. They needed to not just hear it, but understand it. Something Jesus has done for the people by using a metaphor that they can connect with. He is following the same pattern to make sure they get it. That that is, again, the grace of God, not to just throw it at us and hope we get it, but to make sure we get it. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, following that great unveiling of the scriptures for the first time in generations, we read this. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to them to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Let me just ask you, beginning in chapter 4, what was the picture Jesus gave of himself he said I am the what living water in chapter 6 he says I am the bread of life everything that these people had to have physically I am now here that was just a picture the real thing has come I am 
these things. You guys understood it in Nehemiah's time. You got it. You grasped it. That, that, that bread and water were equated with the spirit who had come to instruct and to lead into truth. So I stand before you today to tell you that you are to believe in me. The living bread, the living water, so that out of you may flow forever rivers of living water. By my spirit who doesn't just come to guide you, but to dwell within you. What a promise of hope. The promise made by Jesus here, that he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. That's just the final development of everything the Old Testament had been building towards. And Jesus speaks of the coming of the Spirit, the coming of the Comforter as he's known. But the Comforter won't come, according to verse 39, until Jesus is gone. He's not here yet, but he is going to come. And he will come at the moment Jesus is no longer here so that he may continue the ministry of Jesus to you. And oh, how you're going to need that. Jesus won't always physically be here with you, but his his emissary will. The one whom he sends proceeding forth from him and the father, he will come to you and he'll continue in you what Jesus began. Now, if it meant much to these people, it ought to mean even more to us because we've never seen Jesus physically. How gracious of God that he would give us here today, 2,000 years removed from this event, so that we would know Christ by the work of his spirit, that we would know the life of God in us and that all that Jesus began is being completed in the spirit. As Jesus has told Nicodemus, this will be the Spirit of God who comes with, without our doing anything to dwell within us. And from it, within those whom the Spirit dwells will spring forth life. The evidence that life is there. Of a resurrected new nature. Of a new man. Of life abundant. Jesus says in John 14 and 15 and 16. He gives us the ministry of the spirit. He tells us what the Holy Spirit will come and do. Which for any of you who may be here, and it may, may, may be confusing, well, there's so many things that have become associated with the, the Holy Spirit that really aren't of the Holy Spirit. It's not confusing. All, all you need to do is go read what Jesus says he was going to do when he came. And take Jesus at his word. But, but I can tell you this, when we understand what Jesus is saying here and what he will promise a few chapters from now, it is more than we will ever get to the bottom of. It, it is so rich. It is so life-giving. 
How precious is the work of Christ. How precious is His person. Equally, how precious is the Spirit. Jesus will continue His enduring ministry through His Spirit to us. And this is where, and I just mentioned this in closing. Jesus says to us that if I go away, I will send another comforter. Well, I know this isn't grade school again. And, and we're not here for a grammar lesson, but, 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 but if we say there's another, that means there has to have been what? One previous. Well, who's the previous comforter? I mean, I, I kind of grew up thinking the Holy Spirit was the comforter and that was the end of it. But Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter. Who is that comforter? Well, we learn who that comforter is in another of John's writing, 1 John chapter 1. If you want to go to 1 John 1, I want you to see this. In verse 10. I'm sorry. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, isn't that our problem? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word advocate, translated advocate here is the same word translated comforter in Jesus' ministry in John. Paraclete. Jesus is the first comforter. Jesus will send a second comforter. And what does the comforter do? He advocates for us. He stands between the criminal and the judge. And he advocates. He pleads his case. He interacts where the sinner cannot interact. And and Jesus says, he who believes in me, the first advocate, when you believe in me forever placed within you, will come another conducting the same ministry that I have to you, one who comforts and advocates for you. From a position of life where there had only been death. So come and drink. (coughs) Do you really think you can buy something like that? Do you really think there is anything in you that could earn that? Bringing life. Bringing comfort. Claiming us as his own before the Father. Bringing assurance. Bringing the guarantee that we are forever Christ's. (coughs) Convincing us that Christ's work was for us. So come and drink, Jesus says. 
so that from your innermost being forever (coughs) water of life may flow. Let's bow our heads. Oh, that each of us would hear those words of Jesus. That we would respond in faith to him. That we would drink of him and never thirst. That we would know that our sins have been forgiven. That we have been made right with a holy God. And that for all eternity, the same God who saves us is the same God who will keep us. Come and drink. Father, we stand in awe again before your son and before the work which you sent him to do. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of all that you are of all that you taught us, of all that you accomplished for us. And yet we confess that our old man, the sinner that we are, dies hard. Even then, and even though we believe There are too many days when we lose sight of you and our faith is weakened. So keep us always with eyes to you. Holy Spirit, guide us always to Christ. Remind us, point us, draw us. At times, carry us when we're too weak to walk to Jesus. That we might might find the mercy and grace promised from him to help in our time of need and oh father i pray this morning as well because in a room this size there is certainly the very high probability that there is someone here who has never believed not even once this is new to them Father, I ask that by that same Spirit, Holy Spirit, that you would convict them of their sin. Show them their need for Christ. Cause them to come to Him empty-handed, knowing that there is nothing we can do to buy or to merit salvation. To openly and willingly confess their need for Him. And their dependence upon him for the life he's promised. Father, cause us all to glorify you through the life, the inner life that we have been given upon belief in the person of your spirit. May we glorify you by our belief. May we glorify you in the good deeds for which we have been created as a natural overflowing response to your goodness to us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Seal it now to our hearts by your spirit. 
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.